It's time to lead the people. The show for aspiring leaders at every level. If you want to boost your self-confidence, get noticed, and maximize your impact by leading others, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Matt Pepsel. Ready to lead? Follow me. My special guest today left a successful career as a trial lawyer to become a peacemaker. He has a calling to serve humanity, which he executes at many levels. He's an award-winning author, teacher, trainer, and a highly experienced mediator. He is Doug Knoll. Welcome to the show, Doug. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. We should have a great conversation today. We should, because I'm fascinated by your expertise. It's in an area all about conflict. And when I think about it, you know, I've been in the working world for a long time, and I've seen my share of conflict. And thinking back, it's like, as long as humans have worked together, it seems like we've had conflict in the workplace. And so I want to get you started with this. What are some of the most common sources you've seen when it comes to like anger, frustration that lead to conflict at work? Well, you see a lot of I, 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 the new phrase I'm thinking about is relationship laziness. You know, uh, people are just not willing to invest the time and effort it takes to learn how to be in in business relationships with each other. And this starts in the family. 96% of all families are emotionally dysfunctional. They produce emotionally dysfunctional adults who then end up being in the workplace. And these people have no skills about how to be in relationship with each other at sophisticated levels. And so there is no, you know, there should be no surprise that there's going to be a lot of workplace conflict. A lot of it is hidden. Uh, a lot of it is passive aggressive, but it's 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 endemic in every workplace unless you know you have exceptional leaders. There was a great study done by Google when it looked at its high performing teams, and what Google found, interestingly enough, was its highest performing teams had high levels of emotional safety and very low levels of team conflict because their leaders have the skill sets to create that kind of culture and environment. So that's what we're seeing. And, you know, we've seen it, we've seen it, of course, for the last hundred years, this has been the case because again, the kinds of things we're talking about have not been taught to people. And these are skills that have to be learned. And today with the advent of technology and Zoom conferencing with the pandemic and texting and everything, we have asynchronous communication, which even limits further the ability to develop sophisticated relationship skills that are required for success. Yeah, so what I'm hearing is that when that foundation isn't created at home, we don't know how to necessarily be emotionally uh, mature around one another. It's not going to get any better when we start moving into a high stakes environment like work, trying to figure it out on the go and lots of different personalities. And, and it, it's it's kind of a recipe for disaster, it sounds like. It is. Uh, developmental psychologist Gordon Neufeld out of, out of uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, sums it up really well when he says that in, in these dysfunctional families, children become stuck at six or seven years old emotionally, if they're never unstuck, they can grow up to be mature physical adults, but emotionally they're still stuck at six years old. And that's why when we see people at work and they're acting like six-year-olds, they are. They're six-year-olds in that moment because they revert back to where they became emotionally stuck. They can't go any further than that. I think it's always surprising too when you see some, sometimes you, you'll see uh, senior leaders behaving badly. You know, or something that maybe in normal times they're they're doing fine. They're but as soon as something goes wrong, something's under pressure. You see a, a reversion almost back to that that younger age, and stop maybe just that's short right. of throwing a temper tantrum. But sometimes not. Sometimes you actually that's get a right. temper tantrum. That's right, and that's a, your observation is that exactly correct. There's a clear reversion, and the, and the science shows this. People when they get under stress, 
they're in a situation they can't handle. Their, their, the emotional centers of their brain activate. They're going to revert right back to the last stage of their emotional development, six, seven, eight years old, somewhere in there. And that's exactly what we see. Very common, like very common pattern. Yeah, and it sounds like the Google study really talks about you know team cohesion and teams that are you know uh, feeling that safety, the psychological safety, the emotional safety, ideally encouraged and created by the leader, are going to have higher levels of performance and and uh, and a better team experience as well. Oh, it sounds like. Absolutely, I mean that was what was so amazing about the study, and and you know give Google credit for trying to figure out why do we have two or three high-performing teams and a thousand that aren't working well at all. And, you know, they did a deep dive into it and put their brains into it. And that's what they came up with. It was really quite remarkable. Yeah. I love what you're saying, which is that there's, you know, the likelihood that it's just going to work out is pretty low. You know, when you start talking about this many people and, and I see a huge difference between maybe early career people who don't have as much experience working in these dynamic environments with lots of different personalities. And, you know, I, I used the term earlier, high stakes, and, you know, more experienced leader who knows how to either create an environment for safety or to navigate the situation to maintain it or reestablish it or, or whatever it might be. So, exactly. yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing when you think about it that way. As I said, this is a very, very common pattern. And I've seen it many, many times when I, I get called into organizations to respond to conflicts in teams. And, and, you know, you just see the same thing over and over again. Fortunately, there are interventions that work, but... Yeah, they, those interventions would be unnecessary if people had the proper training to begin with. Yeah, and I, I think it can be unsettling, to use a term, as, as an individual. When you see somebody who's not at their best, they're starting to really get frustrated. Maybe they, you know, they just uh, they, they start to get short with people or they start you know, flailing about and you're just like, whoa, what's you know, it can be uncomfortable to watch. For, maybe watch two other people who are in conflict. You know, that, that happens. And then you're just like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is very awkward. Uh, it, it does happen. But, you know, you mentioned the interventions. I wanted to, to ask you about that. So you teach a fascinating skill that's called uh, that you call de-escalation. And so my question was, how does de-escalation work and what exactly makes it so effective? It works because we start listening to emotions rather than words. And that's the, the essential step is three steps. Ignore the words, read the emotions, reflect back the emotions with a simple use statement. This is all based on, this is a, a, the technical term is affect labeling. It's a form of implicit emotional regulation. And it has been studied by Matthew Lieberman at UCLA with brain scanning studies. And he, is, he and his team have shown why and how this works. And essentially what happens is when we become emotionally upset, stressed, uh, anything that is, upsets our equilibrium or homeostasis, uh, the emotional centers will tend to dominate the neural circuits of the brain, shutting down the prefrontal cortex. And we've all seen this and experienced it. You get angry, you get upset, you can't think anymore. What Lieberman has shown is that when a listener labels the emotional experience of the speaker, there is an inverse correlation that occurs. And that is that the prefrontal cortex activates. And as it, it's the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And as, as it activates, the neural circuits controlling emotions and the emotional centers of the brain inhibit. So it goes like this. The prefrontal cortex activates while the emotional, there's my hand, comes down. It's an amazing process. It's totally unconscious. The speaker doesn't even know what's happening. All of a sudden, in 30 seconds, the speaker feels calmed down. Hmm. 
And it, it's inc I stumbled on this by accident in a very intense mediation in 2005. And then Lieberman's first study came out in 2007. And, and all of a sudden I realized, oh, that's exactly what happened. And this is describing what's going on. So it's an extremely powerful process. I taught this process in our Prison of Peace project, training murderers to be peacemakers since 2010 in, in uh, a large number of California maximum security prisons. And we've gotten phenomenal results. And the, uh, you know, when you take it into the workplace, the, the, the results are equally phenomenal and transformative, really powerful. So as you were describing that, the term that came to mind was, uh, you know, a phrase blind with rage. So I'm so angry that I can't even see straight. I just uh, now all of a sudden my prefrontal cortex, to your point, is, is shut down. I'm not, you know, even controlling myself or formulating my thoughts as well as I, I wanted to. Right. And so what happens is so you get somebody who's blind with rage or maybe they have intense grief. Yeah, it really doesn't matter what the emotion is. It can be positive, too. You can do this with happy people and get a great effect. What happens is they have lost contact with what we can colloquially call their emotional database. The ability to take their interoceptive and affective feelings that they're experiencing inside themselves that are associated with specific words that are symbolic abstract symbols of these experiences. And when the prefrontal cortex loses contact with that database, which is what happens in blind rage or a high intense emotion, Emotions dominate, and all we're left with is our programming. Whatever our childhood programming is, what we're gonna, it's all we're gonna do. We have, no longer have the ability to be self-aware, or to self-regulate, or to self-modulate, and which is why we see the behaviors we see. When we affect label somebody, we listen and, and reflect the emotions. We reverse that process, and the amazing thing is, is how fast it works. I mean, 45, 90 seconds at the most, and it never fails. I've had students all over the world try this in all kinds of different cultures. It's worked everywhere because it's the way the brains are hardwired. And that's what's so amazing about it. So it really transcends culture in that case. And so does that simply look like, hey, Bob, you seem like you're really frustrated about something here. Like, How does that actual process of, of the- Oh, I would, I would say something like this. I said, man, oh, man, you are really pissed off, Matt. You are really frustrated. You're really angry. You don't feel appreciated. Nobody's supporting you. And you're really frustrated and you're really feeling anxious about it too. And you're sad because you've been abandoned and betrayed by everybody. And it, and it just really pisses you off. Mm. That's it. That's how you do it. And you felt, even though you're not angry right now, you, you could feel yourself relaxing on the inside and, and people watching this and listening to it, you, you would feel yourself relaxing. Oh my God, that guy really gets me. And that's, that's how it works. It's that simple. So simple. So powerful. Yeah, I'm not familiar with the mental process behind it, but I can see where if you're feeling that frustration, like maybe you're missing a deadline and others don't have the same sense of urgency as you do. You're the team leader. People are counting on you, but you're like, come on, we got to we got to pull together on this. And people don't seem to be moving at the same speed that you want them to. You're getting frustrated. You're like, if I don't show how angry I am, I'm not going to get the result I want. But if somebody were to stop and say exactly what you did and, and you just laid it out there, you're like, Okay, you are hearing me. You are seeing what I'm seeing. Okay, great. Now I can take it down the DEFCON level, and now we can actually have a conversation. Right. And if you're a team leader and you have this problem where your people are not responding as to the urgency that you think it is, you can calm yourself down. You can say, I'm really frustrated right now. These jerks are not doing what they're supposed to do, and I'm at wit's end. 
and I'm really anxious about this and really frustrated about it. And just by saying it yourself, hmm. you can calm down. Yeah, you've kind of moved it from the subconscious to saying, okay, I, I understand now I'm listening, I'm reading what's going on here. To have a more artful response, I need to acknowledge it so then I can I can move forward with my prefrontal cortex for a change and not just react out of blind rage or whatever it might be. Exactly. And when you, as a leader, let's go back to this example. You've got team members who are not performing with urgency. You can you can actually have a conversation with them and find out what's going on without confronting them. And you would say something like, so Matt, you know, you've got a report that was due last week and you know that we've got to have the, the full report done tomorrow. Tell me what's going on. And you'll start to talk and I'll, I won't even respond to your words. I'll respond to your emotions. Oh, so you you felt like you were disrespected. You felt unsupported. You're anxious because you weren't able to get the data that you want, needed from somebody else because they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And now you're really scared that you've missed the deadline and it's just to totally blocked you from performing. Yeah, the way you're describing it, Doug, it's almost like every time we're having a conversation, we're actually having two conversations. There's the words, there's the content, there's what I'm saying about the report and the TPS and being late and all that. But then there's also the emotional conversation that we're each having. And I can create a downward spiral inadvertently if I don't acknowledge and manage that emotion. And they're exactly. going to respond to me like, hey, wait, you're starting to threaten me. So now I'm going to start amping it up too. Nobody's saying that. They're just doing that. The content, That's if you just read the transcript, you'd be like, I don't understand what's, what's going on here. You're, you're exactly right. And so what I teach is address the emotions before you address, address the words. De-escalate before you problem solve. Because only when people are calm are they able to respond, what we would say, rationally to a problem. When they're not, when they're emotional, there's no rationality. They can't think clearly and we expect them to. And then what happens is people get frustrated. And why does yelling occur? A yelling occurs. We yell at each other in arguments and fights because we're not being heard. And so instinctively, we think if we raise our voice, we're like trying to yell across a river, make ourselves heard. So we increase the volume of our voice to be heard. So yelling is simply an indication of not being heard. And all you have to do is listen to the emotions and the yelling stops because now people feel heard. They feel validated. I'm starting to pick up more of what you're meaning when you say about emotional safety. So as the leader, my job is to create an environment of emotional safety to potentially restore it and even to maintain it. And if I'm going to start getting emotional and really amping up the team, if I do it subconsciously or deliberately or whatever, it's actually going to shut down the type of conditions that the Google project was saying, like, this is what produces great team results. Right. Most people do not understand. That's right. Most people do not understand leadership. Leadership. A leader provides three, three psychological attributes to a group that are absolutely essential. Focus, direction, and safety. And if the leader doesn't provide focus, direction, and safety, you don't, have a, you don't have a group, you have a mob. And you don't have a leader, you have something else. So every leader has to fundamentally provide that psychological safety, provide focus, and say, look out over the horizon, this is where we're going. And you know, most leaders don't have a clue about that, which is why they're ineffective. Very few leaders are effective. But it's because they don't understand the psychological, the psychological um, role they play within a group. They're, the leader's job is not to do stuff. The leader's job is to cohere the group and, and get the group moving in a direction to achieve a task that 
is important to the group. And the leader's job is not to do the task. The leader's job is to create the environment where the task can be done as efficiently and effectively as possible. And a lot of people don't get that, which is why there's so much chaos. There is. And, and I think that, you know, I don't, the reality is the reason that I do what I do is, and really had, is to share and fast forward some of what had helped me become an effective leader, because we just don't teach up and coming leaders the way that we used to. You know, I have a military background. We spent a lot of time on leadership in the old days wow. of, let's say, IBM University, you know, whatever it might be. Those days are gone. And so a lot of times leaders are left on their own to just go trial and error and figure it out. So I'm really glad that you're using your expertise and, and teaching us today. But I know you do a lot of work with lots of different organizations and people because they're skills that we need to have if we're going to have effective leaders. That's right. And I mean, your point is well taken. The military is absolutely the number one best organization for learning leadership. And they, they bar, bar none, are the best. And there's really nothing else out there. If you look at MBA programs around the country, you don't, you don't see anything in leadership. I mean, the only person who's really written it extensively about this is Warren Bennis, and he's in his 80s. He's about, you know, he's done. And so it, it, it seems to be something that people just and companies do not want to invest in leadership development for whatever reason. They're not they're not investing in leadership coaching. They're not investing in leadership training to bring their young people up. It's it's too touchy feely too too stuff. I mean, if you want to do career development, that you that stuff you're supposed to learn on your own. And there are a lot of shamans out there that don't know what they're talking about that are, you know, shilling, you know, I'm a leadership coach and they don't have a clue what they're talking about. So it's difficult, really difficult to sift through it all. I wonder if you might do one more thing for me. So I, I, we've been uh, defining the, the, uh, the three aspects of what leaders must do in the form of, of, you know, focus and direction and safety. And you've used another term here that we didn't spend a ton of time on, but I'd love to get a definition for you just in general in your work, but then also as it pertains to leaders, and that's peacemaker. So you talked about uh -huh. even having turning murderers into peacemakers. Certainly managers, leaders can become peacemakers. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? And then specifically, what does it mean within the world of work? So what it means to be a peacemaker is to be hopefully invited, either usually invited into a conflict and engage people in a process that gives them the greatest likelihood of making the best decisions about how to resolve that conflict that, that they can make, recognizing that there are times when there are nothing but bad choices in front of them, and they've got to take their least bad choice. And so the process is de-escalate people because I don't get called in and make the big bucks unless there's a lot of money at stake and emotions are really high. First thing, we gotta, first thing you do as a peacemaker is you calm everybody down. You de-escalate them in the processes we've talked about before. Then you engage them in whatever problem-solving process appears to be appropriate in the context of that conflict. And basically, um, typically, it's an integrated process where you're getting below positions and looking at interests and getting people to collaborate. You move them from being competitive with each other to becoming collaborative with each other. And there are processes that you learn that I teach, that teach people, that teach peacemakers and leaders how to take a competitive adversarial conflict and turn it into a collaborative problem-solving process. So obviously, this is a skill that leaders should have in the workplace, and it's and it's not taught. So, but the good news is, if you're willing to spend a little bit of time and effort, you can learn. Almost every community in the country has a community mediation center. I strongly recommend to young leaders that they go out and they get 40 hours of mediation training. 
Now, what they're going to learn is not going to be directly applicable to what they do at work, but the skill sets, the underlying skill sets they learn are going to allow them to handle and manage the conflict they're inevitably going to see in a much more constructive way than just what I call leading by YST, yelling, shouting, and screaming, you know, threatening. So YST leadership doesn't work. But if you can, if you know how to de-escalate people and can move them from this competitive adversarial position to a collaborative position, then you're doing effective leadership work. And it can, it's, these are skills that have to be taught and learned. Um, and they can be, there are plenty of places out there where you can learn how to do this. And you just have That's to invest great. the time and effort to do it. I love it. I, I really love the foundation you've laid for, you know, up and coming leaders and, and how much there is that doesn't get taught, you know, but there are ways to go out and, and find out these skills and the knowledge that you need and, and to, to pick it up. And it's one of the things that I've been most proud of is when I'm called into situations that are tough situations because I've developed a reputation for being an effective leader in a variety of situations. So it's worth it, you know, doing what Doug, what you just suggested, going out and getting that exposure, getting that training, it, it will pay off. You know, if you're, if you're going to be a leader of people, then you have to practice the craft. You have to get That's good right. at it. You know, it's, that's right. You work really hard on your technical skills. You got to work on your people skills too, because that's where the majority of your time is spent. As you continue to get promoted, you're almost your whole day is made up of people issues. You might as well get good at them now, because you're going to be with them for a while. That's exactly right. The technical skills will get you only so far, and then after that, promotions and advancement and career success is going to be based on how well you can become a leader. Leaders are in such great. Leaders are in such high demand that the time that you invest in building your skills and becoming an effective leader is far more valuable than increasing your technical proficiency. Well, I like to reward my leader listeners with a little bit of fun too. They've been working hard listening to us today. And as I was thinking about, uh, I like to write a game for my guests and I was like, what game am I gonna create for a lawyer turned peacemaker? This is gonna be, <laughs> gonna be this is the most challenging one I've done so far, Doug. But here you go, I wrote a game for you. It's called Eyes on the Prize. Yep, list of names of people, and I'd like you to tell me: Is this a Nobel Peace Prize winner or is it a prize lawyer? It's one or the other. Okay, so it's either a Peace Prize winner or it's a lawyer. I just got a couple names. Okay. For you. So the first one is Thurgood Marshall. Thurgood Marshall was a Supreme Court justice, so he, he was a lawyer. That's right. Uh, definitely, a and lawyer. he was there also very effective in, in the civil rights movement. He definitely was. He was the first African-American Supreme Court That's justice. Right. Ding, ding. Got that one right. Here's the next one. Uh, Muhammad Yunus. Muhammad Yunus? Yes. Never heard of Muhammad Yunus. Interesting. Muhammad, yeah, Muhammad Yunus and, and Grameen Bank, who I had not heard of either. I had heard of Muhammad Yunus a little bit. Uh, won the Nobel, I'm sorry, the uh, Nobel Peace Prize in 2006 uh, for efforts to create economic and social development. Uh, here's another one. Uh, this one's a little bit more straightforward. Uh, Clarence Darrow. Well, obviously, a very famous trial lawyer from the 1920s and 30s. Uh, well, early 20th century, let's call it that way. That's right. But the uh, Scopes Monkey Trial, teaching mm -hmm. evolution in public schools. And that was a big one. All right. Got that one for sure. How about this next one? Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, of course, ran her, her uh, homes or facilities in India for the homeless and for the hungry and for the, and for the ill and the poor. She is often cast as a peacemaker, but, you know, she's a very difficult personality. <laughs> <laughs> she's also a Peace Prize winner, 1979, for work helping uh, bringing help to suffering humanity. 
was nice. Right. So uh, the Nobel Peace Prize Committee's definition of peace is extremely broad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's so broad, in fact, that the next one is the European Union. I know. <laughs> Lawyer or Peace Prize winner? The European Union. Well, I think the European Union, actually, when it was formed, got a, was awarded the Peace Prize, but for only because I think what the Nobel Committee was looking at was saying, well, for the first time, Europe, Europeans have always been balkanized, so to speak, in small little countries and provinces. And now they have finally come together and forming a, a, a block that is hope, hopefully ending the rivalries. And it actually it's done a very good job of it over the years. Right. I mean, the Britons don't like it. But, you know. 2012, they won that one. Uh, only two more to go. Here's one. Uh, Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton. He was a lawyer. Also, of course, a founding father. Uh, and was extremely influential in the development of the, of the United States Constitution, wrote many of the Federalist Papers, describing this idea of a Republican government that had never been created anywhere on the planet before. I would call him both a lawyer, but in another way, I would call him a peacemaker because he created the, a theoretical foundation that allowed for a legal system that supports peace a peaceful civil society. If you go around the world and look where there are countries where there's a lot, let me rephrase it this way. Oftentimes I give a talk and I'll, uh, like a rotary talk or something, and I'll say, how many of you would like to live in a country where there are no lawyers? And all the doctors raise their hand. And I say, well, let's go to Somalia. You know, you no lawyers, no courts, no wealth. The only way wealth is created is through the, through the law, the rule of law. And lawyers are the ones that support and create the rule of law. So, Hamilton was somebody who saw that the need for an independent judiciary was absolutely critical to the success of this young republic that was called the United States. Peacemaker and lawyer. He was a, a lawyer and a, and a uh, peacemaker and a shit disturber and a singer, Lin-Manuel, he did everything. He's Alexander Hamilton's where it's at. Uh, and the, the very last one we have is Barack Obama, lawyer or Peace Prize winner, Kind of well, he was a Peace Prize winner, but he only got a Peace Prize, and he was a, he was wasn't sure whether or not he wanted to accept the prize uh, because he hadn't, in his opinion, he hadn't done anything really that warranted this kind of this kind of recognition. But really, it was a recognition to the United States that they finally was was able to overcome 400 years of horrible treatment of black people. And elect a black man to to office. Of course, he was a lawyer too, and worked in community community legal stuff, um, community work in Chicago for many, many, many years. And his wife's a lawyer too; she worked in corporate America. Yeah, that's so, why I figured we'd end on a technicality. He technically he won both. He had the, the previous prize both. winner, and he was a lawyer. And he even right. taught law, as it turns out, at uh, at uh, Chicago at the School of Law. That's right. After he got that's his right. JD at Harvard, so. There you go. So that was eyes on the prize, Nobel Peace Prize winners and prize lawyers all around. Doug, I tell you, I, I'm going to get you out on this question. Where can my listeners go to learn more about you? So I've created a web page for your audience. And the web page is Doug Noel, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L dot C-O slash lead the people. Doug dot co slash lead the people. Go to that page. You can upload or download a free ebook about talking about the de-escalation strategies. It's called How to Listen Other People Into Existence. Uh, you can get a copy of my my latest book, De-escalate. And if you want to start really improving yourself, um, you, there's a link there to get learn more about my emotional competency courses, which I um, 
tell leaders the first thing you have to do before you can do anything else is become emotionally competent. And I've got online, an online, a fairly advanced online course to teach you exactly how to do that. So it's dugnall.co, C-O, forward slash um, lead the people. Fantastic. And I will include that link also in the show notes in the episode description. So you're just one click away from getting over to Doug's site and checking out those resources. Doug, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Matt, this was a great conversation. You're a great host. Thank you so much. Here are my patent pending top three takeaways from today's episode. One, conflict is brain science. Our response to emotion has a biological basis, and understanding this is key to resolving conflict in the workplace. Two, stop shouting. We yell when we feel that we're not being heard. We can de-escalate others and ourselves when we stop the yelling and start listening to and conveying emotions. Three, prioritize leadership development. Learning soft skills like mediation will serve you well as you progress in your leadership journey and advance in your career. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider hitting the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for making this investment in your leadership ability. And thanks for sharing this podcast with another aspiring leader who needs to hear it. All right, leaders, until next time. Don't just manage the business when you can lead the people. I'm pleased I, I only missed one. <laughs> I know, right? That's pretty awesome. Pretty good. So, You'll yeah, no, the peacemaker once. <laughs>